If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jordan, and I'm your host for today. And I am really thrilled that we'll be speaking today with Gabrielle Tupinamba. So just to give you a little introduction, Gabrielle is a practicing analyst in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and he is also a postdoctoral researcher in the philosophy department at the Federal University of Rio, and one of the coordinators of the Institute for Other Studies, an autonomous Brazilian collective that organizes students and researchers in precarious social conditions at Brazilian universities. Gabriel is the author of The Desire of Psychoanalysis, which we're going to be speaking to him about today. Uh, And that was published by Northwestern University Press just this year. And also he's the co-author of a book called An Architecture of Edges, The Left in Times of World Peripherization, uh, that was published in 2021 in Portuguese by Autonima Literaria. Uh, excuse my pronunciation. Uh, and finally, he's the author of Hegel, Lacan, Zizek by Atropos in 2013. So, Gabriel, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jordan. Really excited. Um, so, just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and in and the ways that your kind of academic trajectory and your political work and your clinical work um, have met or have uh, parted ways, perhaps. Um, And keep in mind, I think a lot of our listeners are, uh, we have a largely Anglo-American listenership, although there are quite, it it also is international. Um, But I don't think that many people are necessarily familiar with the Brazilian scene in one way or another. Um, So telling us a little bit about that would be helpful as well. Sure. Uh, Well, it's, it's an interesting thing because I think those three, three things, as you said, it's not too much that they met, but that they didn't so much because, uh, I mean, I, I did a kind of a weird, kind of erratic academic uh, uh, trajectory because I started studying literature, then I dropped out of college to go to London to study filmmaking, uh, then 
after that, I studied fine arts, kind of, but still in a similar vein. I, I was still considering, you know, being a movie director or something like that. Uh, then one day I had the unfortunate opportunity to watch my own movies and I realized I wasn't very good at it. So I had to think of a second kind of uh, route. And at that time, living in London, I started watching a lot of uh, Slavoj Žižek's lectures at Birkbeck University. And I was really interested in philosophy. So I decided to do, to do my MA and my PhD uh, at EGS, European Graduate School in philosophy kind of connected, but not directly uh, with psychoanalysis and this sort of Lacanian Marxist or whatever you want to call it, this kind of theoretical framework. But uh, at the same time, while I was doing these studies at EGS, I only had to be away from Brazil uh, a couple of months a year. So I was rather living back in Brazil. And uh, I was interested in, in, in how all these discussions around uh, the sort of renewal of Marxism through Lacan and all of this could actually lead to anything that was has some practical import in politics. So uh, at that time, I was engaged with a political party in Brazil, a, a small leftist political party. At the time, there was a big leftist party in government, uh, the Workers' Party. So most of the critiques were sort of internal critiques of the left by the left itself, right? That was the, the sort of, uh, and it seemed very fitting that, uh, that this Lacanian tradition, the way that it influenced politics, it had a sort of, it has some lessons to how to undo certain, certain fantasies that sometimes weren't, let's say, ideological problems of the right wing or, or something like this, but internal to leftist politics itself. So it lended itself nicely to, to a, to a project that called the Circle of Studies of Idea and Ideology, which was this political organization I was part of for 10 years. So from 2010 to last year, uh, that was kind of the, the sort of practical political uh, trajectory I, I was in. And at the same time, I started taking seriously the idea of becoming a psychoanalyst, I already did analysis for a long time. And, but the three things were kind of separate. Like I was doing my clinical training at a, a Lacanian school here in, in Brazil, uh, the Brazilian School of Psychoanalysis, which is the, let's say the WAP, the WAP uh, uh, franchise in Brazil, uh, doing this sort of political- That's the Jacqueline Miller. Um, yeah, exactly, the, the, the Malarian yeah. chapter. Uh, and uh, doing this sort of, very weird political work because we were interested in the sort of internal critique of the left and, and considering sort of subjective impasses to political organization uh, and also interested in kind of filtering this whole theoretical edifice of Lacanian Marxism through a more practical lens and see, okay, what can actually be done with this? So on the one hand, there was this with political organizations. I was doing my my studies, like my academic, my analytic training at this school, and academically, I was more focused on philosophy. Like today, I'm philosophy, uh, researching philosophy in my postdoc and studying things like philosophy of science and things like this. Don't necessarily try to connect everything, especially in academia, where 
not don't necessarily find it that easy to to bring these topics into it without making them ridiculously abstract. Mm. Uh, but it's inter- I think the interesting thing in all of that is something that sometimes I stop to think about is that it was actually the political work that served as like a, a gateway to my clinical work because not due to let's say political aspirations of clinic but of the clinic but because through these political organizations I started getting involved in housing movements in Rio de Janeiro we have in Brazil a very serious issue I mean a lot of the political struggles in Brazil can be best understood if you kind of look at them from the perspective of land disputes agrarian reform things like this and in the in urban areas the the sort of financial speculation around housing issues it's very very important very critical and we were doing this sort of uh, militant work alongside the sort of occupations of i think squatting like it's called right uh, mm-hmm. people would just go and live in these abandoned uh, buildings and at first, I thought it came through a sort of heroic uh, <laughs> perspective, like, okay, I'm going to bring psychoanalysis to this place. Like, people thought I was a doctor, in fact, and they wanted to talk to me about their problems. And ultimately, psychoanalysis was, in the squats. Yeah, but it wasn't that. Like, yeah. it, it's actually a much worse reason that I was very afraid. Like, I, I didn't feel really authorized to have a kind of a private clinic. Uh, I had a very bad relationship with the kind of training program at this school where I was doing my training. Uh, so I, today, looking back, I think that I, it was actually a ridiculous prejudice, a class prejudice that disinhibited me. Like nobody's doing analysis here with these people. So whatever I managed to do is like already, you know, is something rather than nothing. So the stakes are, are, are smaller, you know? Uh, which is not the, the most dignified mo- motivations in the world, but I, I really think that that was a, uh, a relevant thing. And my private clinic actually came after this. I started working in those situations, with trying and, and some very specific problems appear when you're, uh, for example, trying to listen to someone talk about their problems, but the walls are very thin. They have no mm. privacy. So, let me just understand this. So you were in these kinds of occupied spaces and you were offering some kind of clinical service to people um, who were participating in the activism. Is that, is that what you're saying? No, people who were living there in those spots. Okay. Because we, we, we used to go like in the morning, stay there, see if they needed anything, help solve small problems, like make it a livable space, right? And... In, um, in the middle of that, people will start asking, okay, where you come from? What are you doing? They start getting to know you. And when I try to present to people what I was doing with my life, like the, the short story for them for, for some reason was, okay, so you're a doctor. And then they say, okay, I have a problem. And usually they, they presented it as being, let's say, a, a, a medical condition, like a physical thing. But then you start talking to some of them and it seems like it's something else. But they just wanted somebody to talk to. Uh, there was no f- formal framing of it as a psychoanalytic procedure or anything like this. But like some very obvious com- kind of conditions start to appear. Like I 
I won't say this to you if others can hear it. So you need you need privacy or mm. uh, people who are going through very complicated problems. But at the same time, I mean, if you're a chronically unemployed uh, person in Brazil living in a squat life, everything kind of is conductive to the idea that your subjective suffering doesn't really matter. Like you shouldn't. You feel like you lose dignity if you say those things really matter, you know, compared with the very pressing objective problems you're facing. So, uh, placing psychoanalysis inside that context, like in a situation where class issues really kind of put into perspective this sort of thing, like, okay, why isn't this the most capricious practice ever, like compared with other things these people are going through and, uh, what does it mean for somebody to engage with, with something like that in that context? And those very kind of basic material conditions, like what needs to be happening in terms of spatial disposition, like walls, a door, or you know, or kind of markers of class identification. Mm. Because some people won't say some things to somebody who's clearly not from their world. Uh, so how do those things play to? clinical work. So dealing with those issues, like those issues were very much at the entry door of my first attempts at the clinical practice. So when I actually did get a kind of an office space or something like that with a proper couch and things like this, uh, I already had that issues in my mind, you know, and I didn't really go looking for them. I just encountered them when I was doing other mm -hmm. stuff. And, uh, so that's kind of how I got into this, the clinical part was a bit mm. through this, but not, you see, not because it was like psychoanalysis is this political tool, it wasn't about that. Uh, it was slightly different. Uh, yeah, so since then, these three things kind of have kept separate in one way or another. Uh, so I still do some stuff uh, as a militant in Rio, especially these days connected to, to uh, precarious conditions for, for poor students in universities. So organizing students who get into university programs, even though they're free programs, but then it's very hard to stay at the university, even though you, regard, you you have the opportunity to enter, but the costs of staying sometimes are really high. And uh, well, we're having a lot of problems, not only due to the sort of crazy, catastrophic government that we currently have in Bolsonaro, uh, but also due to the sort of strange situation where a lot of kids have really high expectations to how universities are going to change their lives. And then when it doesn't, the sort of fall, this sort of frustration is really, really, really violent. So we do some projects around this sort of issue. Uh, Academically, today I'm studying philosophy and uh, especially the work of Alain Badiou. And my clinical work is just, you know, what takes most of my time, really. But it's it's pretty, it's going pretty steady, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I, I asked you to tell us a bit about the Brazilian scene, but I think a lot of the problems that you're describing that you've been working on politically are things that will be familiar to listeners everywhere. I mean. Speaking for myself, um, when the pandemic first hit, there are two campaigns uh, that I sort of 
I guess, co-led and have been very involved in. Um, one uh, we've called Corona Contract, which is about um, trying to secure precarious academic staff, um, of which I suppose you and I are both uh, part of uh, in terms of um, our, you know, the, the precarity of our employment. So kind of related to the issue of, uh, of students and um, their precarity. And then the other being um, a housing campaign in, in my own building where um, a number of my neighbors were struggling to afford rent. And we advocated for uh, some rent relief during the pandemic. And that led to most of us being targeted, victimized, and some of us getting evicted. So Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a that's a conversation for another podcast. But anyway, um, uh, so very familiar circumstances that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I, so let, let's get into the book. Um, I, I think you've begun to answer this already, uh, but there is a nice little part in your introduction, uh, where, which I'll quote, where you say, um, nothing prevents the reader from interpreting the impulse behind this project as a rather time-consuming acting out of its author, a possibility which inhibited my engagement with this project for some time. Um, so normally we begin the podcast by asking what, what inspired this book? Uh, what's the, you know, what, what got you working on it? Um, so perhaps you could answer that quote by also telling us uh, a little bit about, answer that question by telling us a little bit about what that quote means. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm like everyone, of course, I'm a bit stupid, but I'm not that stupid not to know that the project of this book was ridiculously ambitious. So the moment that an idea like this crossed my mind, that I would have something to contribute to a, you know, debate about, I don't know, the epistemology of psychoanalysis or something like that, or claiming that there's something not fully uh, exhausted or, or fully uh, researched in analytic theory, I had to consider the possibility that that was just, you know, a bit of resistance or something like that. Uh, so I thought it was, it was of, um, how do you put it, like, it was healthy to, to at least wonder if this sort of, as other cases before, I'm sure, you know, this sort of bombastic statements about psychoanalysis weren't coming from a place of something that probably should just work out in my own analysis or something like this. And uh, especially because there is something that I think is, uh, if you like people who are interested, I, I do feel like somebody should do this. I, I know I know this researcher, she did a bit of a, a kind of ethnography of Lacanian institutions in Brazil. But I think like something should be done more kind of uh, extensively about this topic because when you spend at least in Brazil and but I, I've seen this elsewhere as well when you spend a bit of time around like Lacanians in their institutions you see that there is this sort of underlying kind of gossip about the problems in the Lacanian world or the limits on, on this or that thing but this never translates into any new statement or any contributions, just this sort of, you know, good fun of <laughs> kind of pulling the carpet of under figures of authority or whatever. It's just something that you can easily find. For example, that's why I disagree with some of my friends who are very critical of Jacqueline there, as if people who are 
you know, finding something useful in more millennial-oriented schools necessarily adhere to every position he has. Of course, people have their own private, you know, fantasies of how they are not like that or they don't agree with this or don't agree with that. So mm. I had those were two things I had to question. First, am I not just finding a bit of a problem in my own analysis because it, imagining that there is something about your, for example, your experience that doesn't really fit the clinical space as it exists. Like the statement, my analysts cannot listen to something. It can very well be just, you know, kind of a fantasmatic kind of claim about something in yourself that is just so special. So that was the first thing to kind of pit these ideas against. Like, is there anything more to these claims than that? And second, is there anything more to these claims than just the sort of satisfaction at poking at people who really did a lot of work to, to make psychoanalysis as an international, consistent doctrine with institutions everywhere? Like, everyone has also a lot of, there's, you know, there's good times to be had criticizing, you know, prominent figures. So is it something like that as well? So I was worried about those two things because... Uh, they have a function in other kind of dynamics, in like the dynamics of my own analysis, uh, and in this sort of uh, underlying institutional dynamics where analysts get together to you know talk shit about other people. So I mean, if it's possible that those are just uh, the real motivations behind what, what what I was doing, so I didn't want to make an intervention that seem to rely at any point on, on being confused with those things. And mm -hmm. since there was, I mean, I can definitely tell you that there was mixed with these ideas, there was a lot of, you know, issues of my own analysis and issues concerning my position with regards to, to this, you know, to Miller or to Lacan, a sort of negative transference, you could say, to these figures. And I think it took me a while to reposition myself with regards to these more private issues before I could look at these ideas as something that uh, I think I, I think I even tell you like the, the kind of turning point. Uh, I think that I started getting very in, excited and enthusiastic about the idea that other people could be developing these ideas. And if, if they appeared through somebody else's writing, I would be already quite happy. The moment that that started being kind of something I could, uh, I, I felt like this, I said, okay, perhaps now it's a bit more separated from my private stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not a vehicle to make a bombastic personal point that's not necessarily useful to anybody. And uh, I think also uh, having had the time in, the, in, the, in between the, the first kind of hypotheses being developed uh, and the publishing of the book or the, or the kind of writing of the manuscript, I had enough time to talk to other people, talk to friends who were also analysts uh, starting their training or in the first years of clinical practice and getting like a strong feel that there is actually a sort of movement which is kind of invisible because I don't think it translates into any publications today or 
uh, it doesn't have a public face, but I know a lot of young Lacanians or young psychoanalysts who are already kind of detached from some uh, polemics from the 90s and the, let's say the, the break between Soler and Miller and uh, you know the stakes of which Lacan is the correct Lacan. Like we're just not so mobilized by that, and there are other problems appearing, and we need to deal with them. Uh, so there was already like let's say I I did this, I stopped feeling I was going to make an intervention that was going against the grain of anything, but I found another grain, you know, like another current that was perhaps more informal, something that appeared when you're talking to friends, going to conferences, and then talking to people afterwards about what they actually feel rather than the very schematic papers they present with you know, very classic presentations. But then when you ask them afterwards, it started to feel like there was already a, a sort of sense that there is, a, there is a debate or there is a concern with how psychoanalysis will be in dialogue with other contemporary issues that would make this intervention, again, something less singular and more just yet another contribution. And that's sort of emptying out, again, making, making it seem like it wasn't like a special thing. Also, I think the fact that that excited me as well, I think that was another good sign that it was, you know, a good idea to go ahead with the project. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I wasn't, um, I wasn't expecting such an interesting kind of a uh, formal response because it sounds like what you're describing is a bit like the process of tac of tackling this book was a kind of analytic process in itself, and I guess perhaps writing about the field of psychoanalysis uniquely is one that maybe requires one to question one's own kind of unconscious investments in the project, and then, um, as you said, kind of leads to uh, what what you found was the sort of social. Um, aspects of your interest being a way to, to carry forward with it. So anyway, very interesting stuff. Um, but let's, let's get to the heart of, of the book. Uh, what, this is a bit of a tough question, but, but what is the desire of psychoanalysis? And um, perhaps you could, <laughs> perhaps to make that a bit easier, you could start by saying, how is the desire of psychoanalysis different from the desire to be a psychoanalyst? Because you, you do make that distinction at some point. Yeah. Uh... Well, I think that the, 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 in some sense, it, it, it's, le it's less of a trouble. I mean, the fact that it, we can give a very simple answer is not good for my business because why did I write such a long book if the answer is simple? But I do think it's kind of a simple answer. Uh, how it plays into psychoanalysis is the complicated answer. But the desire for psychoanalysis to exist or for it to be something that, you know, uh, is consistent or is relevant or is impactful. Uh, I don't think that either analysts or analysants or people who, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're keeping a healthy distance from the practice either way, but they're interested in reading Lacan or things like this. Like, you will find at some moment that you need to struggle a bit to justify that this is a, a relevant theoretical or intellectual or practical pursuit because it is crazy. It's cuckoo that psychoanalysis is a... I mean, no wonder that it has so many detractors. They're they are mostly right, like in the sense that it is a bit weird that this makes sense. And 
the, the amount of justifications for it to exist that we publish every like every generation has its couple of books about why psychoanalysis is relevant, why is it still relevant. Like I don't see many fields having to argue for their own existence, and and that being actually a productive enterprise. Like how can you learn something new by trying to re reaffirm that your practice makes any sense? And there are so many struggles that are in psychoanalysis that don't concern let's say, a particular uh, pathological phenomenon, but the very existence of psychoanalysis, right? So uh, regulation of the, clin of the clinical practice or uh, connection between psychoanalysis and other forms of knowledge. What is its relation with regards to science and things like this? There is definitely an investment we already have on making sure psychoanalysis exists. Uh, and, there, and there's also a sort of scandal at serious thinkers who say it doesn't. It, it offends us so much. So what is being what is at stake in those things? That I think it's a desire that of psychoanalysis as such, not of your own analysis. And the question is, does this play a part in one's own analysis, or doesn't? Right? Is this something you can? If psychoanalysis absolutely exists, if it's absolutely incorporated into, you know, a cultural kind of, it's culturally acceptable that it exists, we know it exists, there's nothing at stake in its existence, uh, it's just common sense. Uh, does this change analysis in any way, or if it absolutely doesn't exist where you come from, or it's not thinkable that it does, does that make it impossible for a clinical process to go forward and things like this. So uh, for me that the fact that when you like when you look at both Freud and Lacan, but I think in a way especially Lacan, how intimately connected is doing your own analysis with becoming an analyst and how the emergence of this uh, this capacity to listen to others actually has a, is a marker of your own analysis in one way or another, either uh, the way that Freud describes the, this capacity to use the material that emerges from analyzing your unconscious in your own private analysis, how this is, let's say, the first training ground for you as an analyst, or when Lacan talks about the past, the theory of the past and whatever. Uh, those two situations, it seems like there is something about this, this desire that psychoanalysis exists that you're kind of suddenly participating in it somehow. And uh, so that interested me a lot, especially because uh, when you, it kind of gives a nice alternative entry point to a debate that happens, at least in Brazil, a lot. I think that this is something where it's slightly different, for example, compared to the States or I'm not sure how it, how it is in the UK, but uh, in Brazil, uh, psychoanalysis and in a way especially Lacanian psychoanalysis, it has a good or an interesting integration with the public health system. You can have like analysts participating in, you know, uh, multidisciplinary teams at hospitals and things like this, or offering analysis for free in state-funded clinics and things like that. But there is a, like, if you, if you forget this desire for psychoanalysis, or the desire of psychoanalysis as such. And if you consider it not to have any bearing on the 
on this efficacy of an analysis. Then when you look at these short-term analytic processes that happen in those clinics and compare them to the long-term analytic processes that you can have on a private clinic if you have money to afford it, you can say that they're both the same. But if you include that dimension, well, you start look, seeing that those short-term processes, they'll never turn, they don't, they don't have as their horizon the possibility that whoever participates in them takes them long, uh, takes them uh, uh, far enough to spark, let's say, the desire to become an analyst, right? Mm -hmm. Or to participate in investigating what is in the, the unconscious, a sort of more therapeutic sort of treatment. Whereas this long analysis in private offices, they have that component. So from the standpoint of that idea, which I, I think it's actually a quite self-evident uh, part of, you know, the goings about of psychoanalysis today, we're constantly mobilized in affirming that it exists. Uh, it actually unevenly distributed between those two sorts of practices. One includes this dimension, the other doesn't. And uh, so I, I, that's why I set out to say, okay, what does it mean to look at the analytic procedure with all the theoretical uh, richness that Lacan described it and include that dimension, which is, let's say, ordinarily self-evident and it's clearly something we take into account in many aspects of the, of the practice of psychoanalysis, but of you know, being around these ideas. And what does it mean to kind of build that I, that dimension into the, the formal machinery, the conceptual machinery, and see what it's actually doing in the practice? Mm. Uh, now, this, I think, is a slightly kind of orthogonal issue to the difference between the desire of the analyst versus the desire to be an analyst, which is something that I always found very, very, very beautiful. It's, it, I, I saw that distinction in a, in a book by Laurence Bataille, uh, Batal's daughter was then, I don't know, adopted by Lacan. I don't know what, the, what the, the drama is there. But she has this short book called, uh, oh my God, I always forget how it's translated the Freudian, The Naval of the Dream. The Naval of the Dream, I think, is the title of her book. And the first chapter, if I'm not mistaken, deals with that distinction between the desire of the analyst and, well, all the complicated descriptions we know of what, what, what is that. And the desire to be an analyst, which is a kind of substantialization of this, the transformation of a certain position of listening into a certain way of behaving in the clinic that kind of relieves you of the anguish of not being very clear if you're doing your job or not. I always found it very, very beautiful the way that she makes that opposition. But I do know that a lot of people, when they hear this idea that, well, uh, the desire of, of analysis, the desire for it to exist, for example. It does look a lot like the desire to be an analyst. Doesn't that mean that we are positively pushing something, right? Which is something that goes totally against the grain of how analysts, at least Lacanian analysts, tend to understand their own work. I'm not pushing anything when I interpret. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm not making giving the, the analysis any positive content. I'm actually getting out of the way I'm learning to follow the signification imminent to what they're saying. It's a very kind of, a lot of, it's very, very much thought of as a sort of practice of withdrawal, right? Removing your own prejudices from, from 
from the scene. So how do you square that idea with the idea that even though you're pra in practice, you're kind of getting out of the way of a process happening, how can that be kind of coherent or compatible with inscribing psychoanalysis into the world? Don't those two things seem contradictory, right? Mm. So I wanted to, to suggest that today we have uh, very interesting formal tools to, to, to show that those two things are not, you can definitely think both at the same time. You know, there's this classic Foucaultian critique that psychoanalysis produces its subject and it's very poorly received by psychoanalysts. Like, I'm not producing a subject. I'm just, you know, re returning to the subject their own kind of emphasis and this is the process through which they constitute themselves or whatever. Uh, but you don't need to choose the two things. You can both be producing something and inscribing it and struggling and working towards something becoming kind of part of the world and also be kind of removing yourself from the sort of prejudiced positions with regards to the freedom of the patients, right? The two things are not, uh, my, my impression is that they're not contradictory. I think that actually leads to a, a interesting developments for psychoanalysis too. So, I mean, you're, you're working within Lacanian orientation, obviously, but I'm curious, uh, do you think some of these questions that you're, you're posing um, are equally relevant for people working in other orientations? I mean, I think, although I think your answer is going to be yes, I mean, you could equally say, well, no, actually, all, all the other schools are kind of not worth, not worth my time. And the first step is Lacan, and then we get to these bigger questions. So I think it'd be interesting to hear your, your response to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just... It's, I'm just so embarrassed that psychoanalysis has so many different, you know, uh, little di divisions that, I mean, wouldn't it be good just to have, like, psychoanal psychoanalysts rather than clients beyond? <laughs> I mean, why do you need to choose? Like, why, why are proper names the thing that divide, you know, orientations in psychoanalytic practice? I mean, uh, uh, I, I find that very much the marking of something that is still very kind of still kind of finding its its ground. Uh, I do think that it's always I mean I, I find it always most most productive to to think that psychoanalysis is a very kind of nascent practice with very little kind of uh, time to find out what the hell it actually is. So even though in a very paradoxical way I do find that Lacan is uh, is the author that made psychoanalysis the most kind of rational to me as a practice. I kind of, it lives up to criteria that I would require other things in the world so that I would consider them like a consistent practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, that's a personal thing. I don't see that as claim about Lacan. It's a claim about myself that you know which probably very pathological why why would a reading french theory <laughs> make anything clearer or rational to you it's probably something wrong with me so i don't i really don't think it's uh, a lacanian thing or it should have a hege hegemonic position in psychoanalysis but it's the field i'm most comfortable starting from i would mm. really really like i mean i'm I, I have a lot of sympathy for Beyond as well, uh, 
but uh, and Klein and so on, but definitely is the one I read the most. Or... Mm. Well, it's interesting. You say something at the end of the book that, that seems related to this about the difference between understanding Lacan's movement as taking forward the field of psychoanalysis versus as his split having to do with some kind of just identification with the new master. Um, and, and obviously you're kind of siding with the former as, as what we need to draw from, from the progress that he offered to the field. Um, but this kind of brings me on to my next question, which is um, what you call Lacanian ideology. So, so tell us a bit about what is that? Um, and, and what do you say in the book around kind of the, the political failures of the Lacanian movement and in particular, how you link those to Lacan himself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because uh, I, I got a really, I mean, really generous support uh, for this project from Slavoj Žižek, who, who wrote the preface for the book. He was very generous to, to, to participate in the symposium with it. And I felt like he really liked this idea of Lacanian ideology. It sounds so bombastically critical or something like that. Uh, but he didn't really like the rest of the book. Like, he didn't like the reason <laughs> why I developed that idea. Uh, at least he didn't, he, I'm not saying he didn't like, but he definitely didn't agree with, with most of the stuff. But the reason to come up with this concept is because of what it helps you to identify and therefore do something about it, not really to denounce anyone or... I definitely, the, the first guilty person of this sort of, the first interpolated subject of the Lacanian ideology I know is me. I, it's like a very long history of assuming that what Lacan said about science or what Lacan said about politics for some absolutely random reason is the last word on, you know, on the most rich and complex themes in history. So. Uh, Lacanian ideology, I think it's not my idea. I think it has two kind of fronts. Okay, we can use it to talk about, let's say, the sort of institutional conjuncture of psychoanalysis today, Lacanian psychoanalysis today. Uh, but we can, but I think that's secondary. I start from that in the book just because I think it's, at least it gave me food for thought, like what the hell is happening? It's, it's a question. What I mean, I think most people didn't imagine we would be having certain conversations that were happening in the last couple of years. Uh, so it's good, let's say, to a good kind of opportunity to be a bit perplexed. But the crucial part has nothing to do with the, or has little to do with this specific situation and more to do with a sort of attempt to locate a sort of collateral effect of a really good development. Meaning, uh, to, to, to simplify it a bit, my idea is that uh, when you read Lacan's early work, he has a very strong thesis concerning the, the sort of, uh, how do you put it, like the prevalence or the preeminence of clinical practice and clinical experience as a sort of, this is the thing that needs to be explained. It's not the past of the analysis is not the, gen- the, the genesis of subjectivity. It's what the hell happens when you start talking to an analyst under certain very artificial conditions, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I, I, I find uh, particularly well presented in the text beyond the reality principle, this idea that 
something about Freud's discovery in a, in a kind of materialist way, if you want, like, but perhaps not materialist, but a kind of idiot, idiotic way, in the sense that it's very kind of superficial, is that you can listen to people with absolutely no other reference. Like, you don't ask them to show you things or to prove that it's true. You're just listening to very kind of uh, very strange function of speech. And that, that Lacan kind of names it as, calls it like the freeing speech from the reporting function. You're not listening to a report, you're listening to something else. And I think my, my, my position in the book is that the logic of the signifier or the, adopt, the, the interest in structural linguistics comes from a very, uh, very ingenious, brilliant attempt by Lacan to model and to kind of understand what is that experience with speech and listening under those specific conditions. But there is a collateral effect to doing this, which is structural linguistics has concepts that were devised as means to talk about speech in general or language as you compare different specific idioms or things like this. So it has slightly different underlying commitments than psychoanalysis, which has this very specific com commitment to a very artificial uh, or artificially produced speech. This speech is not usually freed from reporting or from other, a myriad of other functions that speech can have. So it's under very specific conditions that speech has is freed from those constraints. So under when you bring structural linguistics as a means to understand the, that artificial uh, frame, you you need to be careful not to import the commitments of linguistics, which is that you're speaking about language in general, or speech in general. So what I call uh, Latin ideology is this this sort of generalization of statements that can be made about clinical space or about speech in analysis due to the fact that the concepts we're using to formalize what's happening there, they have no marker saying, I only apply here. So it seems like, well, if, if the relation between speech and subjectivity or speech and enjoyment is like this in clinical practice, why wouldn't it be like that anywhere else, if we're talking about the signifier, right? So it leads analytic theory to occupy a very strange place with regards to other practices where uh, it seems like we are, we're dealing with a sort of pre-consistent function of language. It's the function through which speech turns ideas, turns discourse into a consistent thing as a product and therefore the white subjectivity in the in the process. So any other practice that has a consistent state to discursivity, so political practice or scientific practice or anything like this, it seems like it is not seeing something that we are seeing because we deal with language in a previous stage or in a more fundamental level. That idea I consider an ideological idea because from a sort of more or less established definition of ideology that appeared, let's say, with Althusser and others, uh, there is something ideological in taking an idea that makes sense in a very specific context and generalizing it to apply everywhere else. Uh, at the same time that this makes your position something that simply cannot be refuted, changed, it becomes ahistorical in a way. So not to dismiss any of the 
crucial developments of Lacan. At the same time, I think Lacanian ideology is a way of questioning certain concepts as to their proper domain. Now, is this really applicable in everywhere else? I think that's pretty much the underlying question. But It's interesting that you're talking about the sort of delimiting the proper space of the clinic. And, and we began by speaking about your practicing in kind of non-traditional spaces and, and not having a, a proper office or four walls through which to have a quasi-analytic encounter. Yeah, but I think that that's the whole point. Like, uh, I mean, I can tell you for sure, when I was a kid, I was very bad at social interactions. I was a very eccentric little kid, but because of being a bit kooky in the mind, I was also quite aware that something social existed because it didn't function very well for me. So similarly, I guess, you know, when you have to come, when you have to build the conditions for the clinical space to work, you cannot just buy them. Uh, I guess you might become more sensitive to the fact that they are there, even when you're not looking at them, right? And I'm not sure how specific it is to, to, to Rio or to Brazil. I have the impression that it's not that specific. And I'm listening, for example, to Patricia Gerovici the other day, she was talking about her experience uh, for example, con conduct conducting analyses where while listening to gunshots outside of the office. I mean, you there is an effort there is an effort that goes into creating that artificial space where anything can be said. Uh, and I and I think that there there are places and situations where those conditions are kind of guaranteed by other means. It's just kind of common sense in that place that this is the case. Everyone knows what psychoanalysis is and how it works. Uh, but there are situations where it's not. And in those situations, you realize that there was this underlying work that had to be done to construct that space. And again, one of my hypotheses is that what we call this desire of psychoanalysis, this desire that psychoanalysis itself should be something, is part of that. Part of what, let's say, helps to seal this space, right? Uh, but yeah, I agree. It's a bit, it's a bit mm -hmm. ironic, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I see your book is very much also sort of charting out how can we think the question of psychoanalysis and politics together, um, as well as delimiting uh, their differences. Um, so, I mean, perhaps on that note, we could begin by... Um, at moments, I mean, the whole the book is not an attack on the Malarian school as a whole, as you try to make clear, but there are some interesting kind of case studies that you bring up. Um, there's one I really loved talking about the school's um, sort of anti-Le Pen campaign as the way that the, that the World Association of Psychoanalysis um, got involved in politics explicitly in some way. And you said um, the real issue why you believe the school was so incensed and so opposed to the idea of Le Pen winning while not really putting any effort into a positive vision for uh, another candidate and particularly not investing anything in the left-wing candidate, um, Melanchon. Uh, you write, it was necessary to fight against her candidacy, not due to what it would change for France, but because of what it would leave exactly in place. And so you talk about this kind of perhaps what the motivation was, was simply a bunch of quite middle-class bourgeois analysts who the, the great fear is that if Le Pen were in charge, 
their fantasy of being political radicals would collapse because they would continue their practice as if nothing had changed at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder, yeah, if you could talk, I mean, I felt when I read that, I thought, you know, this is actually a brilliant point that could apply to many more people than just the uh, Canadian psychoanalysts. I mean, it, yes, it, 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 of, of the sort of, you know, a lot of the anti-Trump movement, for example, as a whole. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Zizek has a, a small piece he wrote based on a book. I think it was quite brilliant inside that he had. Uh, there's a book by Jean-Claude Milner, small book. I don't think it was translated to English, unfortunately, called The Wages of the Ideal. It's, it's his only book on kind of Marxism. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's actually an analysis of the structure of wages in, the, in France. Uh, and uh, he has this idea that there are two forms of being... Well, his first polemic thesis is that, well, Marxists claim, right, that people who receive wages are working class, while the bourgeoisie has owns the means of production, lives off rent. Right, lives off of rent, and he says, "Well, but this is not what we see today. We have something like the the uh, salary. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce this. The salary bourgeoisie, like yes, the, yeah, the salaried, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, thank God. Uh, and he says, well, there there is a form of rent that appears as overwage, like a surplus wage, and it can appear both as surplus time. So you receive a wage that is a, a kind of in, par with other people, but you have more time than other people, free time, or oh, a surplus wage. So you receive a ridiculously high wage, totally above, let's say, the wage kind of floor. And Zizek takes that idea and he reads a lot of the protests, not kind of trying to be a sort of, uh, to say that there is no legitimacy in the protests, but to, to point out the dimensions sometimes of different protests where people are not so much let's say, joining forces with a proletarian kind of workforce, but protesting against being confused with the proletarian workforce uh, because they want to keep that surplus that has a sort of social distinctive value, right? And I think that, I mean, this is one of the stuff that I'm currently researching with a lot of friends, uh, but is this sort of... uh, a political function of politics. Sometimes being engaged with politics or leftist politics keeps you above a certain, uh, it kind of makes a certain, a certain class distinction that guarantees that you're more enlightened than those people who are, you know, as you said, like stupid Trumpists or things like this, right? Uh, so, for example, I mentioned the sort of French analytic movement against Le Pen and the terror she would be. But in Brazil, we had a similar thing. Uh, we have Bolsonaro, who actually won. Uh, and there was a strong, I don't want to call it strong, but there was a ample movement from psychoanalysts in Brazil called Psychoanalysts for Democracy, suggesting that Bolsonaro was attacking democracy, he was undoing our democracy, or something like this. And part of that movement, one of the things that really scared me was that analysts were kind of proudly claiming they didn't have patients who voted for Bolsonaro, or that voting for Bolsonaro was necessarily a perverse thing to do, which is the most irresponsible thing I can imagine somebody saying. And due to the most noble political leftist ideals, right? They are for democracy, therefore they're against this or that. So 
And again, Bolsonaro won, and their practices is going either the same or better. So, so where is the thing that they would lose, right? The only thing they lost is the idea that there is an incompatibility between their lifestyles, their positions, and the Bolsonaro government. Uh, so uh, in the case of Brazil, I think it was even more pronounced than in France. In France, I mean, the power that the institution had was larger. It created all these different journals and things like this. And it did look a bit bad. And it did, I hope it, it, it made us pause and think about what the hell was going on. Uh, but again, Le Pen didn't win, right? Whereas here, we could definitely see this sort of... Uh, really strange kind of out of place setting up of a boundary which i mean i've never seen analysts proudly claim that they don't listen to some people i think that when you get mm -hmm. to that point it, you can see that it's a, there is ways to combine politics and psychoanalysis that do a disservice to both right and that's so, one of them <laughs> yeah and that's definitely one of them so uh, i thought that that was that was a uh, so, so what do you see as uh, how could psychoanalysis contribute to a political project or, or perhaps how could a socialist project contribute to psychoanalysis? Uh, well, I have, I mean, I have some idea due to just the, the stuff that I was part of or that I've seen, but um, not, I don't think that there is, I mean, if you just change the question to how can physics help socialism or how can socialism help physics? Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure in some situations you can talk about, you know, not having a sort of monopolistic direction of funding to specific researchers in, you know, string theory rather than quantum gravity or whatever, but it's all accidental and it's not like a big program and vice versa. It's a good thing for our militants to know what gravity is, I, I imagine, but it's not like, you know, we're going to substitute politics for, I don't know, some knowledge of of dynamical systems, right? So uh, I definitely see many partnerships, but I do think that we can see them better when we stop imagining that they're going to come in the form of a unification of theories or the proof that one thing is ultimately the other. So the idea that politics, I, I, I mean, there are some cases where this is true. I, I in Brazil, like huge... Uh, occupations of land by the uh, houseless movement in Brazil, which is a MTST, which is a very big movement. It's amazing what they can do for subjectivity. Like people can get, you know, change their, their lives and the way that they behave because they engage with this thing. So in some cases, it's true. You might associate subjective changes to political struggle. Uh, does that mean that political struggle is connected to mental health in a positive way. Definitely not, because, I mean, most of my militant friends are getting sick and tired and depressed and whatever, and if you go look for the causes of that, it's usually their organizations, not the, the you know, the capitalist enemy. It's, it's something that we produce ourselves. So there is something like the leftist superego that can do a lot of harm. So. I don't think that looking for sort of key kind of uh, uh, or, or special ways that these things should necessarily go together is, is going to clarify the stakes of where they can help each other. 
the places where I've seen the most uh, conjunction between the two is, I think, of two forms. One is when you're in a project, for example, you're, the things that I was involved in. I'm worried about organizational problems that cut across different uh, sectors of the left. That's the, the main thing we were working on for 10 years, this, this collective. We were interested in what sort of problems cut across small ideological deviations between collectives and parties and things. So everyone is, they're the anarchists, the communists, the social democrats, whatever. But what are the things that everyone is encountering when trying to do their own thing that everyone is failing at? Let's try to build some forum where those sort of problems are the common basis for compose, composing different movements. So, so could you say this this would perhaps offend you, but something like a reel of, of a political organization? Yeah, you could. I mean, when I started, that's exactly how I thought about it. But for mm-hmm. example, when you say real in psychoanalysis, a, a bunch of other concepts come together to what can be done in terms of interpretation, in terms of, you know, symptom, defense, fantasy, and then also the, the position of the subject and the relation between speech and inconsistency with regards to that real and things like this. But when it comes to mm. politics, not all of those concepts follow. So it is a bit metaphorical to call it a, the real, because can I then talk about interpretation, inconsistency? I can't. I, I'm not interested in dissolving the organization, right? You are, are resignifying. It's not really about those things. So the free association of people is not fully like the free association of words. Mm. Uh, even though there might be something in common due to what free association is, perhaps. But, uh, yes, I, I mean, that, again, but I'm not, I'm not like a stickler. Like, of course, we can call it the real organization. It's fine. So, yes, it was concerned with that. And in those cases, some of those problems were more intelligible if you had some, let's say, claims to the fact that psychoanalysis exists, that some... You know, there is such a thing as satisfaction in displeasure. The idea of the superego helps you to see things, but you're not committed to saying that those phenomena are analytic. And what does that mean in practice? It means that you're committed to finding solutions that will come from political thinking itself. So rather than going out of the meeting and bringing the idea to your analytic school and talking about the real of organization, then having an analytic conversation about it, you're going to bring it back to another collective meeting and have a political debate about it. And you don't know how it's going to be dealt with. It might be dealt with a totally different way than analysts would. So uh, the, the way that I think about this today like that really helps me is the distinction between using and doing. Like I think, of course, every knowledge from every field like when I talk about delimiting concepts, it's not about you know this keep everything in their corners and don't don't talk to each other. It's of course like the more you know about as many subjects you, as you can, the best, the better. But you need to know what you're like what you're doing, and then you can use those things. So you can use psychoanalysis to do politics, but you're not gonna be doing psychoanalysis when you're when you're in that position. In the same way, it's good to know about politics and use what you've learned about politics. But if ultimately you're doing psychoanalysis, what what will have the last word on 
you know, what's a proper and improper use, what is a metaphor and what is not, is psychoanalysis. So it's, it, it's a bit of a pragmatic point, not so much a sort of, you know, everything should be delimited and a sort of analytic philosophy kind of thing, you know, where let's just find the proper use of every word and then we'll be fine. It's not about that. But I think when you take that position, it's easier to find moments where you say, aha, this becomes more intelligible because of what I learned from, I don't know, reading about self-organization in cybernetics or reading about superego. And then you have more tools. But ultimately, what will guide those tools in politics is politics, right? Mm. Something else. So it's interesting to hear you talk about this this concept of the leftist superego, though, because I think if I've observed anything that draws a lot of leftist activists together from different organizations, it's this idea that's that's quite commonplace, at least that I've seen, of the cause of all of our mental health suffering is capitalism, um, and to introduce this idea of well, there might be something internal to the organization that's driving, you know, yeah. the experience of misery um, could be a very productive way of, you know, working through some problems that aren't, that might be related to, but don't necessarily solely emanate from capitalism yeah. itself. I, I, man, I, this is, this really is definitely something that uh, psychoanalysis was a deep influence for me. And I, in a way, I think that this sort of philosophy Lacanian-inspired philosophy really helped because, uh, though, again, I don't think that there's a direct transitivity between the problems that psychoanalysis deals with and political problems. Psychoanalysis is a practice that, if it exists, then we need to admit that sometimes being responsible for the form of your problems is the most emancipated you can be, right? It's not that the problem goes away, but you substitute a problem as it was handed to you or a problem that you're implicated in. And that's, let's say, the most independent you can be. And well, once you know that, that that strategy exists, it doesn't mean you can import it as it is from psychoanalysis elsewhere, but you might start looking at things differently elsewhere as well, right? So that's something that when I mentioned this sort of idea of, of forums for for dealing with problems that are kind of internal to different left, leftist organizations. One of our ideas was precisely this, that still is. I mean, the, that particular collective uh, ended last year, but I'm still working on this with other people. The, the idea that leftist problems are political problems, meaning there is an other that is internal to the left. Because in a way, just like being... Uh, being, no, tr tr taking psychoanalysis seriously is kind of crazy in a, in a, or unjustified in a sort of, in, a, in some level. Being a leftist is also unjustified. I mean, the idea that there is a direct transitivity between suffering, social suffering, and being a leftist, I don't think that's, that, that I think you're going to have very, very frustrating experience if you expect that from people. Mm -hmm. So, you need to kind of buy into something that is quite hard to justify sometimes and that can cause a lot of suffering. And can, it's like falling in love. Like people are ready to know, to accept that falling in love can make you suffer more. So why, why being a leftist wouldn't do the same thing? When you, when you fall in love, you just need to, it, you need to kind of take on something 
kind of improbable or something risky with regards to another person. But when you become a leftist, you supposedly are accepting be, to be inscribed in a continuity that has a lot of shit, you know, a lot of terrible catastrophes to be associated with the really weird stuff. I mean, how can that not have be a cause for anguish as well, right? Mm. So, yeah. Um, we're, we're beginning to run out of time, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what you do with the formulas of sexuation in the book. Uh, this is, <laughs> it, it has to be asked. It's a, it's a personal interest of mine as someone who um, is trying to think through questions of gender and psychoanalysis. And I think almost everybody I've interviewed on this podcast has had either a gripe with the formulas of sexuation, a different way of looking at them, or kind of doesn't want to think about them at all. Um, so what is your take on them and, and what role do, do they have in the book? Yeah, uh, I I'm, I deeply regret the way that that chapter is written because it's way too much for a chapter to definitely be, have been split into two. And uh, I'm kind of planning on writing, writing a sort of addendum to the book, just to develop, um, unpacking some of the claims, especially from the chapter, which is chapter seven. Uh, I know, for example, that when Zizek wrote, uh, read that, I think that's when he said, okay, fuck this guy. Uh, so uh, I know that there, there's something that could be better presented. And, and, but, but the basic problem for me is the following. Uh, if we take the two things we already presented, like already discussed, right? The first is uh, this desire of psychoanalysis having to do with inscribing psychoanalysis as such, as a thinking or as a practice in the world and not necessarily connected with the specific analytic trajectory of a analysis, but of psychoanalysis, right? So that's the first point. And the second is the point about Lacanian ideology and this idea that, uh, well, there are regional limits to certain concepts in psychoanalysis, meaning there is a domain where the concepts are valid, where they kind of have traction, Right. When you bring the two things together, you suddenly can talk about the idea that, well, we cannot ask what does not fall inside the domain of psychoanalysis, because now we have a domain to ask questions about. Does it fall inside or not? Is that something that concerns us or doesn't? Do we know how to listen to that or don't we? Right. And we have this additional dimension that is trying to track uh, the expansion or establishment of psychoanalysis in the world. And uh, once you can talk about limits and you can talk about the history or the process of psychoanalysis as such, you can talk about the limits of psychoanalysis. You can talk about those things that change their place. For example, I don't know, just an example, right? Early on, Freud already quite boldly claimed that sexuality and, and the constitution of the ways we we find satisfaction is something that happens inside. It's something that constitutes itself already in our lives. So it's a contingent process. It's not a moral issue. But he kept the idea that genital satisfaction was a sort of end goal of this process. It might not reach it, but it still was the best possibility, like a normal solution, right? Under those assumptions, he could already listen to people without claiming moral positions with regards to the way that they found satisfaction, that they positioned themselves with regards to their sexuality, but he could not listen to certain things concern, concerning uh, 
homosexuality, other things that would seem like they are, let's say, uh, they didn't fully reach the maturity of satisfaction. And at some point, he changes his mind, right? And he says, well, I got it wrong concerning genital satisfaction as this end goal. And mm -hmm. the way that Alenka Zupacic puts it, it's kind of like every solution is as bad, right? Uh, even the, what we call a sort of normal solution is the pathological kind of bricolage that didn't really get anywhere uh, anyway. So we're all kind of fucked. Nobody is better than anybody in this regard. That changes how he will listen to things. Some mm -hmm. things that will look like a defense or a kind of compromise solution now look as any solution to those enigmas of sexuality as others. So there are changes to the way we listen to people. Uh, again, is that did Freud simply get out of the way of the patient? Well, in some regards, yes, but in other regards, he was still clinging to some assumptions and those assumptions can change and you can listen to people in a new way, right? So how do we formalize that? How do we include that in the way we describe our concept? And the weird thing for me was to realize that uh, once you have the idea that psychoanalysis has a domain, once you have the idea that uh, signification should actually be read against the background of what counts as insignificant, meaning signification is a limited procedure. It can change in time what we listen to, what's significant in speech that the formulas of sexuation apply to this process. Uh, and suddenly they seem to distinguish between analyses that uh, fall within the scope of what is already known of psychoanalysis and analyses that don't. Analysis that rather than, let's say, naming something that is not treatable, right? Naming a, an exception to naming or some sort of paradoxical something that I'm going to say inside the clinic that concerns what cannot be treated in the clinic. So the sort of imminent exception, right? You can also have the situation where the very function of listening, the function of signification is the one that suddenly looks like it's not complete. Well, that's the other side of the formula. And suddenly, once you give them a domain, they don't really seem to be about masculine and feminine. They're just about analytic trajectories that remain inside what we already know of psychoanalysis. They pretty much confirm what we know and analytic uh, trajectories that place psychoanalysis into question. Now, historically, that actually kind of overlaps with the masculine and feminine, but that's a historical mm -hmm. contingency. This, yeah, this is what I was going to ask because I think most interesting attempts to engage with Lacan's work on these formulas of sexuation always seem to go far beyond the question of masculine and feminine. But then what ties it to those terms at all? I mean, why, why, why was Lacan speaking in terms of the masculine, the feminine position um, if, if we're talking about something that has much uh, broader kind of philosophical implications? Yeah, I mean, I, I can, from my position, I mean, the, the, the two things that this reading the two consequences of this reading is first that I think that there are better ways to formalize these ideas than those formulas. I, I take very seriously the way that Alain Badiou criticized the, the, the logic, the use of logics in, in Lacan's formulas of sexuation. I, I think, honestly, I think it's a bit 
poor taste to take something that other logicians will not take seriously and say, no, we are right in our use of logics, not you guys. Like, why not learn how to write those same ideas in a way that people can use, you know, and you can have a dialogue with the field you borrowed the ideas from. And there are other ways of writing them. So that's why I first suggest that if we make a weird change uh, to the sort of grammar of, of the formalisms we use, so if we stop taking some of Lacan's ideas so seriously concerning infinity and these things, we can actually formalize the same process with a slightly kind of hermetic but well-established bit of model theory. So the first is, let's say, a formal argument that you can continue to develop these ideas if we just change the way that you write them and formalize them. And the second is that some of the claims that look like metaphysical claims about Lacan, like feminine and the masculine and things like this, they start looking like historical contingencies. Uh, it is true that to some point, people who had to carry, you know, inventions in psychoanalysis forward were women. Uh, and the fact that Freud asked what a woman wants is it's not a metaphysical question about women. It's a question about psychoanalysis. I mean, not everyone is having that question. So why, again, you know, why generalize the question beyond its proper domain? What women, what women want from psychoanalysis is not the same as what women want. The second question seems more profound, but it also is a question that, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we want to still, still pretend like that's really the, the, the difficult and serious and the kernel of the issue. Uh, so you get to keep a, a, a rational explanation as to why these things were described in this way. You still keep the problem of sexual difference. It's not going to disappear just because the formulas are not named after masculine and feminine. Uh, it's still a core concept of psychoanalysis. But uh, you also get to, let's say, map the formulas onto other things with some prudence, right? It's not like claiming that they're ontological kind of uh, lenses to see everything. They're also not like, we're not doing like a bit of Ptolemy science or, well, it's, we, we look like conservative people with these ideas. Let's just claim that it also includes, you know, transgender in this and that way. You kind of patch it a bit to make it accommodate other issues. And now we're, we're, we're hip again and we're, you know, in the dialogue. No, we're not. Like, it, it's good reason that people who are actually invested in these struggles read our stuff. And most of the time they say, uh, no thanks, right? I mean, it's a bit desperate sometimes, I feel, the way that we're trying to we're lagging behind and trying to remain contemporary. Uh, so uh, I have the impression that this weird kind of solution where you change, you change the formalism, you also change the meaning of the formulas. I think that's the best way for them to keep being relevant, you know? Mm. Uh, but it has that price to pay. It doesn't concern, let's say, the profound kernel of the subject. It concerns what fits into the domain of psychoanalysis. It becomes formulas about what psychoanalysis can listen to. Mm. Well, I could go on talking to you forever because this is so fascinating to me, but I want to respect your time. Um, so uh, 
I think we need to wrap up here, but we always ask before we end, uh, what, what are you working on next? Man, <laughs> I'm working on two things. Uh, the one, I'm not sure which one is most absurd. Uh, one of them is, uh, the, the, sorry, I, I think it will be a continuation to this book because at some point in the book, I, I kind of conclude I'm, I didn't really think about it before I started writing, but I end up with the conclusion that though with Lacan it seems that sexuality, not sexuality, but this, this, this idea of sexual difference is the core conceptual point of view to understand uh, the analytic practice, that ultimately love is a more central theme for psychoanalysis uh, than sexuality. But not in the way that is usually said, but more in the sense that it, trying to suggest that it's possible that psychoanalysis is just a sort of accessory apparatus in the history of modern thinking about love and that it's not even a central uh, practice in that, in that um, history. So I'm slowly working the research into that. What, it, what does it mean to look, look at psychoanalysis as if it is, let's say, a nice companion in a longer, more complex history, rather than something that is the pivot or the center of something, right? So a sort of, let's say, looking at the history of, mod the modern history of love as something that can decenter psychoanalysis a bit. And it's like a, a nice sidekick in that history, but not something central. Uh, so that's one project, but it's going very slowly and I'm also a bit tired of writing and reading about psychoanalysis, so I'm living in the back burner. And the other project that's the one that I'm really, really involved in these days, it's really kind of consuming me, is that uh, I'm part of a research group and we're currently working on combining Marx's critique of political economy with the perspective that Alain Badiou develops with this logics of worlds, and we're trying to make a contribution to it theory of political organization within this weird uh, conjunction. So we're trying to, it's, it's kind of the culmination of this 10 year long project that I told you about. We're trying to systematize a bit. Uh, what does it mean to look at a bunch of people as an organization? And in which sense is that point of view of what organizations are, what they do? How is it compatible or not with what we usually call political economy and uh, things like that? But uh, that's a long story. <laughs> mm. Both of them sound really interesting. Um, and Gabriel, it's been such a delight to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Jordan, it was such a pleasure. And anytime if you want to talk, let me know. We'd love to continue our chat. <laughs>